0: The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Where faith comes to life. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Zoma Isice. Now The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, their faith and <laughs> and ministry and it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, the latest news, reviews, columnists, and more. And you can refre- you can request a free sample copy of the latest issue. All you need to do is go to premierchristianity.com slash free sample. I'll give you that again. It's premierchristianity.com slash free sample to get your free sample copy. Now today on the show I'm speaking to the Reverend Carmel Jones. Many years ago Reverend Jones arrived here from Jamaica as a young teenager and after getting married he set up the Pentecostal credit union which is responsible for helping to fund some of the biggest pentecostal black majority churches here in the united kingdom and as we celebrate black history month in particular this month i think you'd really enjoy hearing a bit more of his background now the time we spent together wasn't enough to give you a full picture about his background, but I'm pleased to say that he has memorialized his um his story and put it in a book a very short book about forty pages long if that which is free to download now the website to download his book is p c u u k dot com that's P-C-U-U-K dot com. And you can download his story for free about how he came over to the UK and how he went on to found the Pentecostal Credit Union. And I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from him today. So let's get right into that interview. Reverend Carmel Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, sir. Thank you. Same here pleasure meeting so now i would love to try and start from the beginning as much as possible which goes back to when you first came to the uk at the age of 17 am i right now i have um a teenager who is 17 and he doesn't know much more than playstation right now but you actually left your country and had to start a whole new life. Yes. On a journey, on a ship at the age of 17. Tell me what's going through, tell us what's going through your mind at that time, if you can. Elation, very
1: excited as to that, me. I'm on my way to the United Kingdom. Uh, Timmy met by my brother, who was here before, and I got, so was like very excited, coming and come. No, no expectation that I'm going to work, I'm going to educate myself, and I'm going to look after my relatives back home. I didn't have any particular plan as such. Other people, they're coming to do five years then go back, but not me. I just come with an open mind and take what comes and deal with it.
0: Wow. Now, as I said before, uh, before we started the interview, I, I've read your book. And just for anyone that is um, interested, there's a, the book is your autobiography, from yeah. when you're 11 is on the Pentecostal yeah. credit union website. Ah, right. um, it's a fascinating book. It's, it's less than 40 pages long. And so you can be read very quickly and it's free, which is lovely. So I really enjoyed the fact that of in that book, a quarter of it was just talking about how you met and married your wife. Mm-hmm. and how persistent she was at first in uh-huh. saying no to you which is quite fascinating now I want people to go out and read the book because I want them to hear about it for themselves but please tell me in your own words a bit about that time is having got here
1: in in London and where I stayed and met a very good man and his wife. I stayed at that address for two weeks, and then I moved to what, not far from the church, tended in earlier 1956. There, when I went to the church, where I'm coming from, every Sunday I was in church back home in Jamaica. And I came here, and I'm, I went to church for the first time since I lived Jamaica in 1955. And what happens is that um, I went to a church nearby me, and I said, um, well, I, was, I went once, Nothing said, twice, nothing said. And the third time, the minister came to me and he said this, I want to have a quiet word with you. I said, yes, go on then. My congregation is not happy with with you coming here because I've never seen a black person. I worked with a Black person in all their lives. So I said, is it so? And he said, yeah. Okay. And that was the end of that conversation. I went out of the church and I walked back home to where I lived in my Yes. Some weeks later, I can't remember how many weeks. But then I went back to the home where I landed first when I came here. And they're all Christian people that was living there. And um, he said, oh, dear, I'm starting to hear about you. Would you like to come to church with me this evening? I said, yes. The Sunday when I started to with him. I've been going to church ever since. But having started to go to church with him, hearing about the Pentecostal church for the first time in my life, I'm going to hear a meeting conducted by a Pentecostal preacher. So when I got there, sat down, went to church, every Sunday without fail, the evening, and then he said he's got a daughter coming up here and she is partly a Baptist Christian. He said, no more. he said, that's nice. And um, I had a friend which was still living at 61 on the road when I came. And he said to me, Camel, I know of a girl that is coming. Morgan. He said the girl. He said the guy. But he said, I wanted to come with me. Go back to the home. Let me show you the girl. He didn't say girl, I said, girl, she's the girl. <laughs> and then I I went with him because I was then now going to the church and make friends with the family. So I was told that I'm welcome to come at any time and to have dinner with them because the young boy going to church, they were excited with it. A friend of mine that was still living there. Yes. He he came to me and said that, um, calm down. He said, I want you to go and see that girl, I don't want anybody to get that girl except you. Why do you think he said that? Because he liked me. And the house he was staying, they don't have <clears throat> talking about me. Going to church, a young boy was going to church in Jamaica, I tell you. And yes. told that I'm welcome to come to at home anytime sometimes sometime, and have dinner with them. And um, when the girl came, I went to the door, and believe me, when they ring the door, without any hesitation, I saw looking down the passageway into the kitchen, I saw a young person inside the kitchen and without him saying anything to me, I said, Jesus Christ, Master D, look at my wife, look at my wife, man. So I him out. That is the girl I brought her here to see.
0: So, said, Rev, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to pick up on something you said. So you're saying that the moment you saw her, you knew that was your wife?
1: I know instead what way, what I loved her from the first time I see her. Oh, wow. I, I don't know what made me say to him. That is my wife, Mastery, said to me with God, but I said it. I don't know what emotionally went through. I don't know, but I said it. And it turned out to be true. I can imagine.
0: <laughs> it's, it's amazing because you've been married almost, I think, 67 years now? Or something like that. Yeah, pardon me? I think you've been married 67 years, is it, of marriage, 67?
1: Yes, I would more than, of course, I, I, popped the, I popped the question, okay. this is important. Okay. And it took me a long, long time for her to, because I was invited, I could come to the home anytime. time. Where they could imagine how pleased I was with that offer, and I kept talking with her, and I posed the question. And weeks went by; she didn't say anything to me. One people coming from work and where she worked, I went on the bus to meet her, and I said, Ivy, I'm still waiting for an answer." And she said, "Give me a week or so, and I'll tell you." I asked again two weeks later and she said, yes. Believe you me, <laughs> all the will start to go inside of me and frighten. I did not immediately. I said, thank you very much. I didn't know what to say when she said she decided to meet my girlfriend. For two weeks, I never go to the home again because I'm frightened if I go too often with myself regular. to regular, it out. She's gonna say, she's well yeah. up with me.
0: Before you go into the credit union, let me talk about the fact that the church that you attended, before you started attending a Pentecostal church. Yes. That church turned you away, the Anglican church that you, had, that you were going to, after you attended for the third time, they turned you away. How did that affect you? How did it make you feel? It
1: did not affect me one iota because I was settled down and that I found somebody in the Pentecostal faith that had just learned out when I came and they took me in arms which followed by membership enrolled as a member in that church, Pentecostal church, and that was it because by them turning me away and not welcoming me, and I went elsewhere, I found this young lady, which is but because of the, the connection I had. And I must admit that had they turned me, took me into the church and welcomed me. I wouldn't be going to,
0: gone to the Pentecostal, and I would not have met her. But also, is it possible that you may not have also founded the Pentecostal Credit Union, if they're taking you in? As a result of that too, one follows the other. It just happened without
1: being planned my life. It just rolled on and rolled on until I said, I continue in in the Pentecostal church now. Yes. I saw the need for people asking me to lend them money, to lend 10 pounds, 10 shillings, And I gave that. And then when they get paid again, I I gave the money. At that time, I didn't know that I was being prepared to do something. Absolutely. Until... Until I, years later in the church, I see everybody going flat out to become a minister and to get a church. And the only thing that was missing is provision. The church couldn't assist anybody. Say, for instance, in, a, in the early stage, if people have any... Death back in Jamaica that couldn't go because they were paying back the money they bought to come here. And they just mourned their death here. I said, God, if you can show me a way, while others racing to become a bishop, a pastor, an evangelist, but want promotion, that is good, that is good. But what was missing was provision. In the churches, have some small money, maybe turned to big money. But, and that's where it started. In September 1979, I saw an article in the Sun newspaper. And when I read the article that Saturday morning, I said, "I want to know about this. Lord, heaven, this is an answer to my prayer."
0: I want to address something that, that was quite important in the history of the Pentecostal Credit Union, which was when the FSA got involved. I mean, I've read the book and I know the story. And at the time, the papers were saying you were one of the UK's most influential black people. And yet, because of your desire to help a church, it almost saw the end of the union.
1: And I had so much money in yes. the bank. I People could not borrow money. I didn't, didn't know about me, didn't trust the organization. And then I said that um, I must find a way to get to the church, to the pastors, to the bishop, whoever they are in charge, a scheme that would bring money to them and their membership, membership members. And that scheme, uh, for the uh, the FSA, how did the scheme that I use, which was uh, that because a church organization or uh, any organization could not join a private union, so I take somebody wanted by the church. Um, The idea came up and I met about three leading people
0: that I want to do this. But Reverend, I want to ask you something, if you don't mind. At that time, it's a huge risk. It it could have gone wrong, but you're willing to take that chance on behalf of churches. What makes you want to do something like that? to make sure that churches progress even though you know it's a huge risk to you I said, it is creativeness i create
1: a scheme my which yes. the people could be helped mm-hmm. and i never that from that day until now i'm no longer in the leadership yes the people love the thing mr as i said money comes in and some of bought a church and uh, bought a building for the credit union. And yes, many of those leaders, bishops and pastors, gave me a thousand pounds each to go towards buying the building. Wow. So, so 100% support I get from the leadership until this day when my time comes to mind. And I silly little boy, I felt he could have break the credit union, but as it has, as it happened, yes. he could not do anything. And the FSA themselves said, this man has not yet a penny out of the Reverend Jones. Absolutely. He not get a penny out of the deal that he made of people. And I learned this morning, I created the idea with a members in the church could put money into the credit union and take credit union to money from the credit union to buy a church. And one, one guy, a gentleman, this good guy, he said, use my name. The first man I gave a credit, money to, to buy a church was Bishop John Francis of the Rock Ministry. To buy an
0: empty, empty, empty building. Bishop Francis was one of those people that stood up for you among other pastors that said, you know, they, they came and they lent you their support, didn't they? And and that hopefully that made you feel that you made a good decision. <laughs> but it didn't stop the it didn't stop the growth of the union. Now your grandson is in charge now, and yes,
1: when I sent him. He is, he, when he finished his university studies and he applied for a job, I said to him, hear me, I'm saying this to you, that the way the credit UN works, nobody, nobody ever tried my scheme because they couldn't do that. The trust wasn't there. And I said, this is your baby. This I'm not going to be able to carry it on all the time. So when I said, if, we, if I didn't have so much money in the bank and so much heavy voices supporting the credit union, they were, they were scared of going out and making publicity about this. Yes. No, they, they couldn't do it. They could do it. My absence, it made me more successful than wow. even when I was there. I said, I'll take the blame. Blame me. Mm. I said, I'll take the blame. Nobody else is to be held responsible. And, and,
0: and that's, it? I was just going to say, that speaks so much of your... Um, integrity and you did detail that in your book in in a lot of ways you did explain that how you said you were going to take the bem and and you said that to your board very very clearly I um I know you wanted to talk about that in a bit more detail but I know I want to make sure because our time is fast spent there were just a couple of things I wanted to mention when you talked about that church going back a bit when you talked about the church the Anglican Church turning you down. But more recently, and the video is on YouTube for anybody that wants to watch it, the service where the Anglican Church apologised for turning you back many years ago.
1: Yes, the, the, yes, I did.
0: If you could look into the future prophetically, can you see where you think the Pentecostal Credit Union will be some years from now? What do you see? Progress. Mm. Progress.
1: Go from strength
0: to strength
1: to strength. The credit un shall ever be. And and all the time that we have people like Shane and Elaine working.
0: That's your daughter and your grandson?
1: Yes. Yes, my daughter. But beforehand. It was me and my way. And I have no doubt whatsoever. Let's go on. This can only get better. And it, only, it has only yeah. got better. gotten better. <laughs> so the progress, wow. when these can't do it anymore, I've long time. I mean, they can't do it. We train somebody
0: else to take over the hell, because God Mm. is in control. Amen and amen. Reverend Carmel Jones, um, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you too. This is, obviously, this is Black History Month, and it's an honor because a lot of people talk about Black history from other parts of the world, but you are actually a part of the UK's black history and you've left a legacy that we believe is going to outlast you, your legacy of faith, your legacy of the Pentecostal union, credit union, and the impact you've had through your consistency and what you've decided to do, the vision you've had. Yes. So, so we just honour you today and thank you. So more About than that, that. you've yes. got to realise that the,
1: the churches that we bought, will build. Asset base for the black community, yes, in, in the shares and in London.
0: Wow.
1: So we, we have a hand in building
0: assets yes. and we we own this land. Okay, that was Reverend Carmel Jones speaking to me. Zoma Isiche here on Premier Christian Radio. We hope you enjoy this interview and for hundreds more conversations like this, you can download The Profile as a podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from or visit com slash The Profile. That's premierchristianradio.com slash The Profile. Now, I did mention that all of um the story about the life of Reverend Carmel Jones is documented in a free book that you can download from the Pentecostal Credit Union website. So that website is pcuuk.com. pcuuk.com. And on that website you'll see what's called a slider where the picture changes Every few seconds, and you will see the slider that says download his story and a picture of the Reverend Carmel Jones himself. So you can download it from that website pcuuk.com.
2: These days, you can't get a lot for your pound. You could get a pack of balloons, a DIY face mask, or some plasters. Ouch. Or, £1 could get you great reporting, brilliant interviews, and loads of Christian news articles, all in Premier Christianity, in print, online, and on the app, for just £1 a month in the summer sale limited offer. Get yours at premierchristianity.com. The Profile.
0: You're listening to Premier Christian
2: Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Chick Yu. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. To request a free sample copy of the latest issue, visit premierchristianitycom slash freesample Today on the show I'm speaking to Chris Bowater. For more than four decades Chris has been one of our most loved and respected songwriters giving us worship classics such as Jesus Shall Take the Highest Honour and Faithful God I began by asking him why songs are so important in our corporate worship and in our personal experience
3: What makes a great song? Well Somebody once wrote a song which says, I want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Uh, there's something that is unbelievably powerful about singing and about song. Uh, somebody else once said, they would rather write the songs that the world sings and the laws they live by. Mm. And I think that's quite a revealing comment because uh, songs form a generation. Songs form truth in us. They form anarchy in people uh, as well. They are summaries of society. Now, the art of a songwriter, Christian songwriter, is to capture what the preacher is preaching, what the pastor is pursuing in the church, what the prophets are prophesying, what the intercessors are praying, and put them into three and a half minutes. So that... Truth can be remembered, but that then is the issue that our songs must contain truth, not just good ideas.
2: One of the reasons I, I, I've invited you on the show, apart from the just nice to see you, the reissue of your classic album Time for Tears, that's just been done. Why reissue that now? What was the what was the thinking, the impetus behind that? Well, there's a lot
3: of talk going on behind the scenes, which didn't involve me that this was a 30th anniversary. Um, they say, you know, you're getting older when the policemen look young. Well, you know, you're getting older when you have an album 30 years old. <laughs> 30 years is, is quite an interesting phase in the church history. Time for Tears was my first studio album that tried to replicate what we do live. And so there was a continuity within the album, a flow, if you will, of, of, of songs so that there's a, um, a consistency of theme and music and it grows and develops and takes people on the journey.
2: So I was going to say it was a kind of milestone in, in your career, in your, in your progress as a, as a songwriter.
3: For me, Time for Tears was almost like a landmark.
2: I guess lots of our younger listeners won't remember the 70s and 80s and the beginning of the worship music. I mean, they'll kind of assume that things have always been like they are today. (laughs) Tell us a bit, take us back to those days, if you will, and and tell us a bit about your part in it.
3: Yeah, it it hasn't always been like it is today, (laughs) but certainly. um, I, I remember the church pianist who was very biblical, and that was... Her left hand didn't know what her right hand was doing. (laughs) So, no, we haven't always had the excellence that we get in churches today. But I was part of a Pentecostal church in Lincoln. I'd moved from Solihull as a school teacher to Lincoln and joined this Pentecostal church. And it was a good Pentecostal church, don't get me wrong. But this might sound a strange thing to say, the Holy Spirit turned up. And when the Holy Spirit turns up, he never leaves you the same. And it all came out of a message, again, let my people go that they may worship me. And it was almost a release in the spirit. And I ended up writing worship songs morning, noon, and night. I'm not even sure whether I wrote them. I think I just caught them. I think heaven was throwing these songs out back in the 70s. And I'll say, I'll have that one, I'll have that one, I'll have that one. And my congregation were the first ones to hear it always. And I I think that in itself is an interesting part of the journey. I wasn't writing for an album. I wasn't writing for a project. I was writing for the church.
2: Chrissy, you, you used an interesting phrase there, the Holy Spirit was throwing out songs for you to catch. Can you elaborate on that a little more? Because I'm, I'm sure it was more than you just sat there and sort of mechanically wrote down what the Holy Spirit said to you. Talk to us a bit, if you will, about the creative process.
3: Well, there's certainly are times in the writing process, Chick, but you have to work on your craft, I trained at the Royal College of Music, so I studied composition, singing, piano, uh, conducting with Sir Adrian Bolt, and I had a very privileged musical uh, education. So I do understand the process of crafting, but these songs seem to be something that didn't come out of a, a creative thought process, they, they just dropped into my spirit. It's the only way I can express it. It was like I hadn't pre-thought it, a pre I would sit at the piano, and as my fingers touched the keyboards, it just seemed like heaven opened up before me with melodies, harmonies, and words. Mm. And it happened as clearly as that. Mm. And uh, some days I was writing songs you know, almost all day. I was catching songs all day.
2: Yeah.
3: And Yes, and there are times when you have to craft a song. And this is an important point. Somebody once said the best songs that are written are the ones that are rewritten.
2: Mm.
3: In other words, you revisit, like a preacher, you revisit your notes, you revisit your sermon. And you, you think, you know what, I can say that in a better way. I can, I can present that better.
2: Chris, are you still writing music today? Are you still as creative and productive?
3: I'm creative in different ways. I'm not writing as much music. But in my journey, Chick, I became a teacher of worship. And so I established worship academies around the world, um, which is another part of the story, but literally in every continent. But I then, 15 years ago, became a pastor of a church. And so when I was still traveling, I was still pastoring. And so I would go to Singapore in five days and come back to be in church on Sunday. Total madness in some ways, but it was incredibly fruitful. And so my creativity is is more to do with church leadership and pastoring and um, releasing I love the whole idea of releasing next generation.
2: I want to go back to something we touched on earlier, uh, but I, I was asking you a little bit about the uh, the beginning of the of the worship movement in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you spoke a bit about your role in that. Were those difficult days? Did did you meet with resistance in some part of the church? It certainly
3: was. I think anything that is perceived to be radical um, is is opposed. And I was written about, along with other writers of that time, like Graham Kendrick and Dave Fellingham and Dave Bilborough, as the ones that were destroying uh, the hymnology um, (laughs) of the church. And it's furthest from the truth, those who know me really well, know that actually my first first look at worship is through hymns. But yes, we were criticised even the introduction of instruments into church, which we now take for granted. I remember taking a guitar into church, not because I'm a guitarist, but I was carrying it for a friend. And um, I was stopped at the door by a small elder. And um, there's not many people that have to look up to me because I'm not that tall myself. But he looked up at me, he says, young man, what have you got in that guitar case? (laughs) <laughs> and I thought the clue is in the question but anyway <laughs> I, I went with it I, I said my sandwiches sir and he said look don't try to be funny I said honestly my sandwiches are in this guitar case. <laughs> Um and then he turned to me he said I want you to promise me if you play that guitar in this church you won't wiggle your hips
2: <laughs> I said
3: excuse me I said why is that a problem he said, because Elvis Presley wiggles his hips and we won't have any of that in this church. And I wasn't sure who had the biggest problem, um, him thinking I looked like Elvis Presley <laughs> or me finding my hips to wiggle. But <laughs> there was just automatically a resistance to change. Uh, Chris, that's, it, that's what it was and, and that still
2: is the same. That's a, that's a wonderful story. I'm, I'm crying listening to that. You can play that guitar as long as you don't wiggle your hips. And it is, it is interesting, that kind of prejudice. But I just want to ask you, how has your understanding and experience of worship developed over the years?
3: We need to always understand that change is here to stay. In other words, it, it's always going to change. It's always going to move forward. We can't be locked in a time zone, um, either musically, uh, I dare say even theologically, because God is bigger than our theology. God is bigger than our understanding of him. And worship is rooted in revelation. And again, somebody once said, I wish it had been me, but I didn't say this, that when revelation ceases, worship ceases. And Revelation is that whole process of discovery, of finding God in new ways. And in the newness, there's new expression then. It's it's like a relationship. The more we know someone, the more we love them, the more we express our love in different ways because we mature and grow in our love. And so I believe over the years my, my music has matured. I'm not trying to become more clever, I just try to reflect what God is saying in a clear way.
2: Here's something that I read from an interview you gave, oh, I think many years ago. Really interesting thing, you said, I don't believe in the phrase uh, or title, worship leader. And I don't think that I can actually lead people in worship, I can only lead people to worship. And that's my role. That's a really interesting thing to say. Were you just being provocative or is that something you still feel?
3: No, I still I still believe that, Chip, because uh, I cannot worship for you. Mm. Um, I can only worship for myself. I can encourage you to worship, but I can't do it for you. Um, I, I tend, when I'm writing uh, to people about visiting their church, I say I'll be very happy to lead sung worship, to identify the, if you like, the part of worship that I would be doing, which is the singing part, because worship is far bigger than song. And I think this is probably one of the problems that we've had uh, over the years in the church, that worship has become so song-centric. And Don't get me wrong. I am a musician. I love music. I love song. But prayer is worship. Giving is worship. Our fellowship is worship. Listening to the word of God is worship. And we have to understand that I cannot lead you. I lead you to worshiping God. I can make that introduction. I can be a facilitator. That's a good word as well. I can be a facilitator for your worship to God, but I can't do it for you. I've taught probably for decades that when I go to a church, I serve the leader of that church, which is often the senior pastor. And so I would say to that senior pastor, you are the prominent uh, worship leader in this church. Mm. And because you are leading this congregation to a place of worshiping God. So I am facilitating my role within your bigger picture of the of the service. I don't have the bigger picture. And I think sometimes there is a danger, and this might be controversial. There is a danger of just handing over to a musician the whole service. Mm. And I I speak as a pastor. Here's a thought. that a reflection on society today is that we live our lives in boxes and maybe we're replicating that in our church gatherings, that we are creating little boxes and um, the lack of the holistic understanding of the worship experience um, by just saying that the singing is the worship um, I think is damaging uh, because our worship life is not just a Sunday. Mm. Our worship life is a whole life. Um, my ministry is called Lifestyle Ministries. And so how I am with my family, with my relationship, with my wife, how I am with my finances, how I am with my leisure vision and everything else is all to do with my worship. And so we need to have holistic understanding, not living in little boxes.
2: Yeah, as Chris was speaking there, I'm nodding furiously. You can't manage to see it at home, but I'm nodding furiously to that. For a number of years, I worked with the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity on their whole life discipleship program. And that sense of whole life worship and whole life discipleship is, I think, really important, which leads me to another question. I read that somewhere you defined worship as a response, a relationship, and a recognition of who God is. Can you enlarge on that a little bit for us, Chris, please?
3: Yeah, I love alliteration. <laughs>
2: yes, so do I.
3: <laughs> uh, it works for me. Um, but I've already mentioned the other important R, and that is revelation. It's a revelation of the works and the ways and the will of God. And the more we see him... and My my first call into ministry came out of Isaiah chapter 6, which begins with, and I saw the Lord. And out of seeing the Lord came a whole revelation, not only of God, but of himself, and then of God's purposes, which ended with, the course, the mission call, who will go for us? And he cried out, here I am, send me. And so worship has to be... A, a relationship with God. It has to be a recognition of God. It has to be a response to God because worship is love language. And where there's love, there's response. Where love, where love dies, uh, responding isn't existing. Or where responding doesn't exist, love will die. Put it the other way around. And, and, and you know, we talked about how long we've been married. You've been married 53 years uh, Leslie and I have been married 51 years. Do you know what? Well, that's a long time. But um, there was a songwriter who wrote the words, I've grown accustomed to her face, accustomed to her smile. And I think that's quite a negative thing because I don't know about you, but my wife continually surprises me. Amen to that. <laughs> and there's, there's things in our relationship with her, I never realized that. And so I ask people uh, to do with worship and relationship with God. Here's the question. When was the last time you saw something for the first time Mm. about God? Because that is the very catalyst, the the spark, if you like, for refreshing and renewing our our worship life with God. It's, It's a revelation God, I've never seen that before. I didn't know that. You are amazing. Amazing God.
2: He is indeed an amazing God. On your Facebook page, you have a photograph of you and Dave Bilbera and Noel Richards, uh, obviously in, in worship. And, and the caption is, not a smoke machine in sight, three amigos simply worship. Now, that might have just been one of those facetious throwaway comments, but I kind of wondered if behind it was, are you concerned that there might be a temptation for worship leaders to court celebrity and that worship could degenerate into mere entertainment? Am I putting too much into that?
3: I think the answer is to yes to all the above. <laughs> <laughs> I, initially, it was um, just a, a facetious throwaway comment because um, it was very simple, it was um, without production, which is another word used today. Um, It was very much planned, but mostly spontaneous, and and it was a lot of fun and uh, very uncomplicated. And it was raw, if you like. It kind of takes you back to the days we talked about in the 70s. Hopefully our musicianship was better than back then, but it was raw in the sense of being simple, um, not complicated, and certainly it wasn't to impress people. Um, I think there's always a danger when you have a platform. I don't care whether you're a musician or whether you're a preacher. Um, Platforms are very seductive. Um, It gets even more seductive when you have a microphone and when you have lights, because then all of a sudden you're into uh, another world. And um, I think you then have the danger of believing your own press release or believing your own uh, sense of importance. And I think there is a temptation, and I'll put it that way. There's a temptation, there's a test. On all ministry what our motivation is Mm. why do we do it and uh, I think as a musician as as a one who facilitates people into worship um one of the best things I ever saw was when the worship leader when the worship team um left the platform the congregation was singing and they left the platform empty because it wasn't about them. And there is always a danger that, either whether we're preachers, pastors, or musicians that become performers, that we make it about us. And as Matt Redman wrote, it's all about Jesus.
2: It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. Got a question that just come in from a listener saying, I wondered and wanted to know, what is your favourite song, Chris, that you wrote? Uh, uh, and, and the one that you have most enjoyed singing and having played. Is, is that a question you can answer?
3: It, it, it is, and yet it's also a difficult one. Uh, my wife and I have got five children, so it's like saying, which is your favourite child? Always <laughs> <laughs> <And laughs> a
2: dangerous question to answer.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have favourite children. They, they're all very special. And, um, and songs serve seasons as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a time and a place a moment for for songs to become very, very important. Uh, I'm going to answer it with two songs, actually, if I may. Um, Highest Honour, Jesus Shall Take the Highest Honour, has to be the song that I know is sung in a multitude of languages around the world. And I've heard it sung in Cantonese, I've heard it sung in Romanian, Polish, Mm -hmm. French, Portuguese, and so on and so on and so on. And when you hear... Um, the world singing your song. It, it's a foretaste of heaven, of the nations gathering, you know. So, Highest Honor is way up there. The Faithful God is perhaps my most special song because it has a special backstory. I, I, I said we have five kids, and um, uh, after having two children, uh, my wife had triplets.
2: Wow. Um, <laughs>
3: which was a, a bit inconvenient. Uh, <laughs> say <the> uh, <laughs> we, well, we didn't have a house big enough. We didn't have a car big enough, and we didn't have a bank balance big enough. But uh, Mark, Hannah, and Sarah were our triplets. They're now 41, so they're, they're, they're not children anymore. But the middle one of the triplets, Hannah, was born with additional needs, with learning difficulty. And so... We had a very different journey with her to the educational journey of the other children who went on to university and so on and so forth. Um, And when Hannah was small, very small, we were told by medics, she would never have a meaningful lifestyle. She would never work. She would never be able to be independent and, and all the nevers. And Leslie and I, on our knees one day, surrendered our nevers. God. And we we decided that never wasn't going to be an option for God. And we surrendered Hannah to God and said, God, will you have the last word on her life? Was she healed? No. But did she have a meaningful life? Oh, my goodness, yes. She's worked for years and years in a care home situation, Mm. looking after the elderly. And uh, doing things that I could never do or my wife could never do. Um, meaningful, loved, active. She volunteers in the church. She's loving Jesus and loving people. And the song Faithful God was written in when she was very small, which just basically simply said, God, we trust in your faithfulness. Your goodness and your mercy never fail. And so, all-sufficient one, I worship you. And God became our all-sufficient God for Hannah, most definitely. And so this song is down to Hannah. And it's sung around the world in all kinds of languages. And people around the world know about Hannah. And we give God glory.
2: That's a beautiful story. I, I love that song, and I've sung it. Countless times but I never knew the story Behind it and that was You've got to stop this Chris you're making me cry And Scotsmen are not supposed to cry in public What do you What would you want to be your legacy As a songwriter
3: That's That's a very difficult Question because You're projecting yourself Into people's consciousness You know and uh, I don't I find it hard to think of myself as highly as that, if I'm honest, like, like any of us. Um, I pray that people will know I was faithful to my calling. You know, good and faithful servant is the ultimate acc- accolade, of course. Um, so whatever he says to me, I did it. Mm-hmm. And I pray that that will be the, the hallmark of my life, but also that... I was at home, what I am on the platform. That there's a consistency of lifestyle, there's no no contradiction. And uh, the love of God will shine through at home as well as on the platform.
2: Yeah, you know, I think you've pretty well answered what was going to be my final question, my, my coup de grace at the end. When you stand before God, as we all will do, what do you want to hear from him, Chris? You made it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good answer.
3: (laughs) Because, you know what, it it isn't tough being a Christian. It's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's by grace. It's absolutely by grace. And to know the grace of God on our lives that enables us to, to not only encounter him in worship by the Spirit, but one day to see him face to face
2: that was chris bowwater speaking to me chick you here on premier christian radio we hope you enjoyed this interview
3: i'm sam Howes, and you have been listening to the profile podcast really hope you enjoyed that interview there's loads more where that one came from over 200 interviews with different christians from all walks of life available now on the profile podcast and new ones coming each and every week If you have been enjoying these interviews, we would so appreciate it if you could take just five seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. It helps other people to discover the show. So why not do that now? Give us a rating and a review, and we'll see you next time.